Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned to Future City, our monthly conversation that changes the conversation about Baltimore from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show. In 2015, there were over 700 Confederate monuments displayed in cities, parks, and towns throughout the United States. Since that time, more than 25 American cities have removed one or more Confederate monuments from public view, sparking a heated national debate. Is this revisionist history or an attempt at rectifying a historical wrong? The country is extremely divided. So, today on Future City, we'll be exploring the historical realities of Confederate statues, when they were erected, and for what purpose, and ask... How do we confront regrettable historical realities without forgetting about them? What will memorialization look like in our future cities? Here in Baltimore, we've seen four Confederate statues removed, with some calling for others to be taken down in the near future. We'll talk with a representative from the Commission for Historical and Architectural Preservation about this decision, as well as a local artist and community organizer who's attempting to bridge divides between city communities. But first, we'll be consulting two historians in order to fully understand the context and reality of Confederate monuments, while also addressing the concept of historical memorialization more broadly. We're joined now by Professor William Fitz Brundage, and he is the William B. Umstead Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, as well as the scholarly advisor to the Commemorative Landscapes of North Carolina Project. Professor Brundage, it is so great to have you on. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. So can you contextualize some of those Confederate statues for us? You know, when were the majority of them erected and where? Well, they, um, it's a, been a long process, which I would like to emphasize is not over. There are Confederate monuments being erected literally up to the very present day. Hmm. Uh, the, the first monuments, as you would, might imagine, um, were erected shortly after the Civil War, and they were typically monuments to Confederate dead. And they, they would be put up in a local cemetery to honor those from the community who had died in the war. And so they, they, those monuments most of us probably have never seen if we have never gone to a southern cemetery. And those monuments typically looked very funereal. They looked like they should and they were in cemeteries. But then in the 1880s, and especially between 1890 and 1920, mid-1920s, white Southerners, uh, particularly those, of course, committed to the memory of the Confederacy, started erecting public monuments in public space outside of cemeteries, usually in the most conspicuous space available in whatever community, to honor not just the Confederate dead, but Confederate soldiers in general, and the Confederate cause more broadly. So then you get monuments to the common Confederate soldier standing on top of a high pillar that many of us sort of take, that's what we expect to see. But there were also other monuments erected to the women of the Confederacy, of course, to certain Confederate heroes, especially someone like uh, Robert E. Lee. But as I said, these tended to be conspicuous monuments in very conspicuous public space. So there was a claim that this was a memory, this was a, a part of the Southern history that should define these communities. And in many communities in the South, 
um, these monuments were literally the only public art uh, and certainly the most conspicuous spaces. But there has to be an understanding of, of what the interpretation of some of these monuments are and, and the and, and the pain that these monuments cause so many people. Do, do you think there's, is there a level of antagonism that goes to the continued need to, to, to present these? Or is it just a, or, or do you find something else being the motivating factor? Well, you know, I, I, I'm having, in, based on the conversations and what I've read, uh, of course, the advocates, the defenders of Confederate commemorative monuments, street names, school names, etc., will repeat the mantra that it's heritage, not hate. And they argue that this is heritage, their heritage, and it's being erased from the landscape. But I, there is certainly what I will call a kind of tribal dimension to it. Because if you have, uh, from my experience, if you get into a conversation about the preservation of Confederate monuments, invariably the defenders of the monument will introduce some sort of genealogical connection to the Confederacy and to a Confederate soldier. And so their claim is usually that they should have, that their heritage should enjoy this primacy of place. Um, and it's not, it's not then articulated further that somehow this is the memory that should be preserved to the exclusion of anything else. That's not said. That's left unsaid. Well, and I know that there's no one who has, who has been more in-depth uh, in this and understanding all sides of, of this argument than you. So, so when a lot of people view the removal of the Confederate statues as a way of erasing history, what's your response to that? Yeah, I, I have heard that uh, and, and a commonplace argument, and, and, and I, I understand it. I certainly I, I appreciate it because this is an argument made by many, many, many people from all manner of vantage points. I have heard the line that well, taking down Confederate monuments is like what, like what ISIS did destroying classical shrines and classical architecture in the Middle East. And I, I, think, I think that's a very um, inappropriate analogy. I think what we're talking about here is not erasure. If you remove a Confederate monument, it doesn't, be, doesn't mean that people will not learn about the Confederacy in school. It does not mean that people will stop visiting Civil War battlefield sites. It does not mean that people will be ignorant, because those of us who teach history often complain that our students don't know what we think they should know, and they're living in a, man, in a, in a landscape filled with monuments. So. Those monuments, they, they only teach a tiny slice of what anyone should know about any historical event. And, of course, they teach it with a very particular vantage point. So I don't think of its erasure. In my case, I don't want to see monuments melted down or ground under dust. I would take them down or move them to a particular interpretive space. We want to preserve them because they are interesting historical artifacts that can be used to teach history. I think of it instead, especially in communities where they have very, very little public art, very little historical commemorative sculpture or art of any kind. I, I instead ask the question is, what does a community want to have as its symbol of its identity 
at the present day. There may be communities that still want to have a Confederate monument up there. And, well, uh, if they want to do that, I, I would not advocate it in most communities, but if they wanted to do that, that's their choice. And they use some procedure to arrive at a, um, a consensus, shall we say, to preserve the monument. That's one thing. But I do wonder why, for example, on the state capitol grounds in North Carolina, the most prominent, towering, looming monument in the 21st century is a monument to Confederate soldier. That's if you move that monument somewhere else and preserve it, it provides an opportunity to place in that space something that is more representative of North Carolina in the 21st century and the aspirations of North Carolina democracy and North Carolina public institutions. So I see it really as a question not so much of erasure, but as what we want to occupy our most important public spaces. We've been speaking with Professor William Fitz Brundage, who is the William B. Umstead Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Professor, thank you so much for your insights and for taking the time to join us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show that asks, what's next for Baltimore? Today on the show, the controversy over Confederate monuments and historical memory, how cities of the future will remember cities of the past. And I'm incredibly excited to be joined now by Professor Ann Sarah Rubin, Professor of History at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and she's also the author of a number of books on the Civil War, and most recently, Through the Heart of Dixie, Sherman's March and America. Professor Rubin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So if we could start just telling us a bit about you and your research and and why this issue became so important to you. Well, I started working on my Sherman's March book um, all the way back in 2005, but I'd actually had the idea for it even earlier than that, which was, for me, what's really interesting about the Civil War is what did the Civil War mean? What did the Civil War mean to people who lived through it? And then how has the Civil War continued to have meaning in American history and in American society today? And I always tell people, no one in my family was here during the Civil War. I don't have a dog in the fight. But that it becomes a sort of repeating story for Americans. I picked Sherman's March because it had such a powerful cultural resonance that when I first started the project, I thought was maybe outsized in relation to the importance of the march. I will say that over the context of working on that memory story for so many years, it it started to become more important, I think. And I saw much more of the strategic importance of the march, but then also the really deep cultural significance of it. So tell us a little bit about Sherman's March and, and why it had that deep cultural significance. So Sherman's March um, took place in the last really six or eight months of the war. Um, the part that most people are familiar with is the march from Atlanta to the sea. It's been memorialized and things like Gone with the Wind is probably the best known representation of it. Um, there's an E.L. Doctorow novel about it also for a more recent reference. And they march across Georgia. Sherman said he wanted to make Georgia howl. And so they live off the land. Then they spend about a month in Savannah. And then the second part of the march takes place at the end um, in the winter and spring of 1865, where they march up from Savannah through Columbia, South Carolina. That city burns. 
it might be Sherman's fault. It might not be Sherman's fault. It's it's an open question. And then they march all the way up and at the end of the war are um, outside of Durham, North Carolina. And at that point, the second largest Confederate army under Joe Johnston surrenders to Sherman about a week and a half after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Now, one of the things I think is really uh, compelling and fascinating about your research is you are researching and you're digging into a topic that has very uh, has just so many varied opinions and varied emotions that it triggers throughout your research how what has been the response to the research and how do people view the civil war its effects and its consequences as you've gone and continue to do your research Part of what I wanted to do with this Sherman book was really unpack all the different kinds of stories and different kinds of narratives we know about it. So, for example, there's the kind of traditional story, again, the sort of gone with the wind, white Southern perspective, which is, of course, Sherman was terrible and he burnt everything in his path. And it's all about the devastation experienced by white Southerners. But then if you shift it around, you can look at it from the perspective of Sherman soldiers. They thought the march was terrific. They had a lot to eat. Nobody was shooting at them. They thought they won the war. And then if you look at it from the perspective of African-Americans, Sherman's March is a double-edged sword. It liberates them. It frees them. It brings the news of emancipation and makes emancipation a reality for them. But if all of the food is burned on a plantation, that doesn't just hurt the white family. It hurts the African-Americans who relied on that as well. The book and my own work and my own interest isn't really in deciding which story is right or which story is true, but it's in saying... Why does this story persist? Why do we tell certain stories and not other stories? Who shapes the stories that are told? Who shapes public memory? Who shapes cultural memory? And and so when people talk about memorializing history, you know, we, we're talking a lot in this uh, in this show about statues mm-hmm. uh, and and monuments and ways for people to remember our history. How complicated a topic is that? Monuments and memorials are incredibly complicated because if they're if you're long distant from the time that they were put up, right? And a lot of these Confederate monuments and Confederate memorials are 100 years old, 75 years old. They just seem like they've always been there and they almost fade into the background until you stop and really look at them. But what that means is that we lose sight of the fact that these monuments were put up to commemorate specific events or specific people and that they were put up for a reason. That monuments aren't neutral, right? They don't just spring out of the ground like mushrooms. People go to a lot of trouble to install them. And so what I think is really important is both to unpack the reasons that they were initially erected and then to sort of reflect, was this something that reflected the values of the entire community at the time they were erected? Is this a monument that reflects the values of a community now? And I I don't think that, I will say this, I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table, which is I think that removing monuments does not equal erasing history. It equals moving a monument. And so so I love what you just said, that monuments are not neutral. Uh, so when we're talking about whether someone is removing a monument or you know putting it somewhere else or whatever the case might be, 
Uh, to your point, there is a. It's, it's not even just about the monument. It is also about the intention and the reason mm-hmm. the monument was placed there in the first place, right? So how how do we think about it in that respect? That it's not just about the commemoration, but it's also an understanding of the idea and the thought and the intentionality that went into placing that monument there in the first place. I think that those questions are really interesting and really important in a city like Baltimore, because. Baltimore has Confederate monuments. Baltimore was never actually part of the Confederacy. It never seceded. Maryland certainly never had a majority of pro-Confederates. Even Baltimore didn't. And so the fact that these monuments are placed in Baltimore is privileging one piece of Baltimore's complicated legacy over all of these other kinds of stories. And the the timing of the placement of a lot of these monuments, which is often during periods of civil rights activism or changes in laws um, that gave greater civil rights to African-Americans, is not coincidental. They're placed there as a symbol, as a signal to say that this white power structure that was reflected in the Confederacy and in the values of the Confederacy still hold sway and that the story that these white Confederate uh, descendants or sympathizers, what have you, they want their story to have primacy. They want their story to be the one that is physically represented on the landscape. And so what should be done? With these monuments here, you know, Baltimore is uh, is is one of a handful of cities that has has now made the decision to at least remove some of the Confederate monuments. How should we be thinking about this going forward? I think the way to think about these spaces, and first of all, I think that the the empty plinths, the empty bases of these monuments, are so powerful. They're such a statement of the the fact that what these statues represented is no longer what the community values. I think that's powerful in and of itself. In terms of, of things like renaming, and I know that uh, the city council just voted to rename the parts of the Wyman Park Dell for Harriet Tubman. I think all of that is great. I will again say personally, I am not a fan of naming things for people because so often <laughs> People have some kind of flaw. Everyone has feet of clay. Maybe not Harriet Tubman. You know, I think she's probably a pretty safe one. But I I think that to start to think about these places as sites of community values and as places where you could name them, you know, name it after emancipation, name an area for justice, name Mm. one for freedom, maybe um, have contests for people in the community to, if not submit their own works of art, vote on submitted works of art to to reframe these memorials in new ways and in ways that I think are more, um, in ways that I think prompt more kind of constant or immediate reflection where maybe you actually really see that site anew, whereas before when that statue had been there for 50 years, you just sort of didn't notice it. And we notice that it it doesn't stop with Confederate monuments, right? I mean, I think that, you know, we think about the fact that George Washington Mm -hmm. had slaves. Thomas Jefferson had slaves. The $20 bill is named after Andrew Jackson. Uh, So there's a lot of people with incredibly not just complicated, but from some horrific actions of their past. And so at what point does the conversation and, and how do we think about it in that respect for the fact that this is not just about 
Sherman or Lee, but this actually extends to far many people, far, far a far longer list of people. If we really want to dig into the history of individuals, yeah, I think, and that's why I was saying, I think you, you know, you have to be careful when you name things after individuals. And and look, right, Washington owned slaves, and um, there's a great book out right now about the lengths Washington went after to recapture a slave who ran away from him. So he was not just a benign quotes, slaveholder, right? We we know how problematic Jefferson is. The difference I would say, and I, I'm not entirely comfortable drawing any lines, but the difference I would say between, say, a Robert E. Lee and a Stonewall Jackson and a Washington and a Jefferson is Washington and Jefferson built the United States, right? Lee and Jackson fought against the United States. So I think that that the Confederate case is particularly challenging um, and is is, in my mind, sort of particularly um, difficult. And, and my first book actually was a study of Confederate nationalism during the Civil War and the ways that that ideology was shaped. And so I, I say that coming from a place of taking the Confederacy seriously as a separate nation so that it would be almost, in my mind, it's almost like having a statue to, I don't know, Cornwallis or Benedict Arnold or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but that's why I also say, like, I'm weary of naming things after people. Because values change, identities change, everybody is flawed. Maybe that should be the message. Maybe there's some way to represent those flaws. Maybe you take a statue of of Jefferson and then you put a statue of the Hemings family next to him or something like that where you're trying to, to show the complexity of these people. What role does the Confederate flag play in this conversation? The Confederate flag is a really, again, interesting issue. My feeling about the Confederate flag has long been one of the great things about the United States is that you are free to fly that flag on your personal property, but that it should not receive any kind of state sanction. So the gradual and and torturous removal of it from state flags and then finally from the South Carolina State House, I think, was long overdue. I also think that that a lot of what we've seen since the summer of 2017 has been a really powerful shift in broad public opinion. And I think you can't overestimate the significance of Charlottesville, Virginia, and of people seeing the Confederate flag juxtaposed with swastikas. And that all of a sudden, that seems to have turned a switch in many American people's minds, where they realized that perhaps those are are more alike than different in their racial attitudes. So I know that your most recent book does talk about how Americans view historical memory. So even since doing the research for the book, how has these most how have these most recent conversations helped to evolve the the, the thinking around it and helped to shape? Uh, how you view this work? I think one of the things that that I really came to understand in studying the historical memory of of Sherman's March is that the memory shifts according to what's happening at the time. So, for example, um, there's not a lot written about Sherman between his death in uh, the early 1890s and World War One, but then in it's World War One starts. Um, there's a lot written again about Sherman's march and and comparing what Germany is doing in Belgium and things like that to Sherman's march. So that it memory of of events it it's in, it's cyclical and so it it pops up at interesting times. I mean, in terms of of does this particular cultural moment have a lot of uh, resonance speaking 
about Sherman in particular. I haven't seen a lot of that. I will admit I finally, after the book came out, turned off my Google alert on Sherman. <laughs> but, um, you know, I haven't seen, because there are no statues of Sherman in the Confederacy and there haven't been calls to to take down the statues of Sherman, say, in New York City or in um, Washington, D.C. Although, frankly, there could be and arguably there should be because he essentially advocated genocide against Native Americans during the Indian Wars in the 1870s. So he's a, an example of somebody, right, who's honored for one part of his life when, by today's standards, what he did in his later years was reprehensible. So when people talk about how we should remember the past and that remembrance doesn't necessarily equate to celebration, Mm -hmm. but that we need to have an important understanding of what happened because it's the only way to think about the past. I mean, I think about in in Beirut, there's a a really famous street in Beirut where they basically kept the bombed out buildings as bombed out buildings because they wanted to serve as reminders to people of this is what war looks like and have it be a guide for how they think about the future of their society as a so instead of just completely redoing it mm-hmm. keep it shelled so people can see it not a celebration of war but a reminder of the consequence of it how can we do that in a way of saying we will need to we need to remember our history but not celebrate it i think that's an incredibly powerful way to do it. And so that's where I think maybe you do want to keep an empty plinth, an empty statue and show in some way, whether it's signage or whether it's alternative figures around it, but to show that once these were celebrated and that that celebration of Confederate heroism came really on the backs of, it came by ignoring and shunting aside alternative views of that history. But that that now we see the whole situation more clearly and we see that as a, a historical moment. I mean, that's the other thing about history, right? It keeps flowing on. It keeps changing. It's not fixed. So what happened in the past is fixed, but it then influences and resonates. And, and you know, what's the expression, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm. And I think that that is, is what historians are always... Um, kind of banging their heads against or bumping their heads up against is seeing these patterns and we hoping that it's going to turn out better the next time. But I think, right, you can't erase that past. You can't hide that past. I would argue, though, that that a lot of the debate, the debate over Confederate monuments in particular, when people say that by taking down the monuments, you're erasing the past, that past the that the, that they think that the monument advocates think is being erased is this confederate heroism past and perhaps the past that we ought to be remembering is jim crow segregation yeah. so that that that's the other thing is that there are always conflicting views of the past that there's no one kind of broad historical truth right events happen but their meaning is always shifting you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Ann Sarah Rubin, who's a professor of history at UMBC. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, we'll talk with Baltimore's Historical and Architectural Preservation Division Chief about the controversial removal of four Confederate statues. 
And we'll also speak with a prominent local artist about the role that art can play in communal healing. That's next. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City, the show that asks, what's next for Baltimore? So today on the show, we've been exploring historical memory and memorialization through the lens of the Confederate monument controversy. Now that we've explored an issue from a broader historical perspective, let's focus in on our city, Baltimore, a majority black city with a complicated and problematic history of racial tension and violence. Not surprisingly, the city's four explicitly Confederate statues became the focus of immense controversy, a controversy that led to the statues being removed overnight in August of 2017. We're now joined by Eric Holcomb, Executive Director of the Commission for Historical and Architectural Preservation, commonly abbreviated as CHAP. Eric, it is great to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting me. So can, you, can we first talk about what CHAP does, why it's important, and, and what is its mission now? Sure. Uh, CHAP was created in 1964 as a uh, local historic district commission, and we were created to actually administer the design review for the first local historic district in Baltimore City, which was on Mount Vernon Place. So basically, it was we were created to preserve uh, uh, the, the, the great space of Mount Vernon Place. And from there, we uh, just kept on growing. And today, we have uh, 35 local historic districts, soon to be 37, hopefully, cross your fingers, uh, over 200 uh, Baltimore City landmarks. We also uh, help conserve the uh, monuments that are around town. Uh, we provide historic preservation recommendations and history to uh, the planning efforts of the city of Baltimore. So we're here to provide history as a tool to help revitalize and reclaim our neighborhoods and make this the best city it can be. So can you talk a bit about Baltimore's very complex history in the Civil War? We could go back. You know, I. I usually stop and say, uh, uh, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald spent some time here in Baltimore, and one of his famous sayings, and I'm probably paraphrasing, is that genius is the ability to hold two opposing views without cracking up. Uh, Well, Baltimore did hold two opposing views, and it cracked up plenty of times. Um, and when you see that, the, uh, we, we see that the, the racial history of Baltimore goes back to the late 18th century. We see in the 1790s uh, such figures, uh, African-American fig- uh, free African-American figures uh, actually running for office. Uh, we see a strong community being created by 1850, 1860. Uh, we have about 28,000 African-Americans in Baltimore City. 26,000 of uh, those African-Americans were free. So we had this incredibly strong and vibrant free African-American community that was very active. Uh, remember back in the uh, mid-1820s, a guy named William Lloyd Garrison came down to become the editor for the uh, Benjamin Lundy's uh, paper, The Genius for Universal Emancipation. And I like to think that it was in Baltimore where William Lloyd Garrison was rubbing elbows and actually talking and being part of that African-American community. So what was happening here? was really important in terms of that African-American community. On the other hand, um, you had a very strong uh, slave uh, 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 market here in the community. Uh, I like to say Elijah Tyson, which was a Quaker, a white Quaker, uh, who dedicated himself for abolitionist purposes and to the African-American community. He lived at the corner of Pratt and Sharp Street. Four blocks west was a guy named Austin Woolfolk. 
and he was the one of the largest slave traders in in the mid-atlantic at that mm. time so you see this incredible just mixing of not only uh different communities but different ideas and ideologies and constructs so by the time that we get to the civil war we see strong opinions on both sides so you've been a chap for 23 years but it seems like over the past few years this has really intensified in terms of urgency. I, I think that these monuments were not, uh, I, I think people saw them, they knew of them, but nobody really thought uh, uh, there was no opposition to their message. There, was, uh, there are the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and I think the United Daughters of Confederacy would come down a year and do a, uh, during uh, Robert E. Lee's birthday and do some sort of memorial memorialization of that birthday. Uh, we would get calls from uh, some of the um, uh, Sons of Confederate veterans who were interested in uh, you know, maintaining the monuments. One of those monuments was the Confederate Soldiers and Sailors Monument was adopted by a, a family, and they would provide money for the conservation of that, of that monument. Um, so, but the urgency really came up. I think it really, you know, it it became prominent uh, with the uh, uh, Dillon Roof uh, uh, incident, uh, that, that tragic incident. South Carolina. Um, South Carolina. And then, of course, when the Charlottesville happened, everybody was really tense at that moment. And the mayor decided to remove these uh, using her police powers. And I think really to, to prevent a... a, a a public safety uh, incident. So, so bring us back to that. Um, August 2017. We are all watching these images on a Friday night that eventually bleed over into a Saturday where someone's actually killed. Uh, this led off a national, national conversation about these monuments, about the history where the mayor eventually does make a decision to remove four of the statues in the middle of the night. You say it prevented a potential public safety situation. What do you mean by that? Um, if you remember, I think it was in, in Durham, North Carolina. Folks went over there and put a rope on these things and pulled them down. Uh, the Lee Jackson Monument weighs about 14 tons. So the idea of somebody doing that uh, could could be tragic if, 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 if an accident occurred, if that fell on somebody. So I think that was part of it. I think there was other parts of it where there may have been opposition to folks from, from uh, moving towards m removing these on their own, just uh, uh, in a, in a mob-like fashion, move, taking these things and pushing these over. There may have been opposition to that, and that could have started something. So I think that was real and, and alive at that time. Um, so that's the reason why. Uh, uh, she removed those, and it was it was I think in the best interest of everybody. It was it was the wisest decision at the time. Why those four? Why those four? Um, because uh, well the, well we know what the Tani you know he is the author of the Dred Scott decision, and you know even though folks like to say that he, he, it wasn't his idea that uh, what is the quote the. Um, that uh, a black man has no rights a white man should respect. Uh, he said that's what the, he interpreted the Constitution as saying that. I think there was obvious uh, 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 evidence to con uh, 
contrary to that decision. I think it was a, it was a, just a horrible decision, and that and that uh, Dred Scott decision uh, is is was just probably one of the worst decisions ever made uh, in U.S. history, yeah. maybe world history. I don't know. Um, so so that one, uh, the Confederate Soldiers and Sailors Monument, uh, 1903. When you do a close read of that monument. Yeah, it does honor the sacrifice or honors the loss of life of the Confederate soldiers and sailors. But when you do a close read of that, it honors the Confederacy. And it says that you were fighting for a right cause and God's going to vindicate your cause. So you start to see that that monument, because all monuments are what I call multivalent, means there's different messages coming from these monuments. One of the messages is to honor the soldiers and sailors. Uh, the other one is to honor the Confederacy. And we know, as the professional historians have told us, that the Confederacy the, uh, was fighting for the perpetuation of slavery. And we go to the uh, women's, uh, the Confederate Women's Monument. Same thing. When you look at that, if you do a close read on it, you look at it, the dying Confederate soldier, which is being held by the young woman, um, he's lying on a, a bed of wheat. And wheat is the symbol. I mean, this is going into your classical art history. The bed, uh, wheat is the symbol of resurrection. So what is he saying? So, so what is that monument saying? And this dying soldier, of course, is grasping the tattered battle Confederate flag. You know, it is saying in part, or one of the messages is the Confederacy will rise again because it was the right and true thing. White supremacy is the is what they believed and they perpetuated. And in the Lee Jackson, uh, I think when you look at it, the stop rambling here. Um, when you look when when you looked at it and you saw the words on sort of the the front of the base that that uh, faced the street, it said purpose, star, 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 so great. It was a, it was three stars in a bar. So it's almost even that's the symbol of the purpose of the Confederacy is so great. And you see that. And was the purpose of and today I think uh, after look at reading the uh, professional historians and after you know a lot of soul searching as a country, uh, a lot, lot of civil rights that. The Confederacy wasn't. The, the purpose of the Confederacy was not great. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore, and we've been talking with Eric Holcomb, who's the executive director of the Commission for Historical and Architectural Preservation, or CHAP. Eric, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now we're going to speak with a Baltimore artist that sees the local art scene as fundamentally divided along racial lines. She created the Art Partide talk series, and is an active community organizer. Her name is Sheila Gaskins, and she joins me now over the phone. Sheila, it is great to talk to you. Hello. It is so wonderful to hear your voice. And so uh, maybe first you can just tell our listeners a little bit about you, your background as an artist, and what you're involved in these days. Well, I'm just so excited. Just, just so you know, this is one of my dreams. <laughs> so to be on this show right now, I'm like geek. <laughs> really, really. We feel the same really about one you. Of my dreams. <laughs> Bless you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I am a product of Baltimore City and mainly Baltimore City Public Schools, where I was raised during the 70s, where everything was plentiful. Uh, Carter was in office and resources were abundant and people were really taking advantage of such good things. And in my elementary school, the arts, was just as important as math and science. So 
I learned that, and art was a major part of my upbringing. Um, in your high school, high school, I went to Walbrook, studied under Cheryl Pasteur. Mm. So art was just as important, like I said, as everything else. And it wasn't until I got out of that setting that I realized not everyone has that art background or have access to art like that. And, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot about uh, I think a lot about South Africa and I want to ask you about, you know, the work now. But one of the most powerful things we knew about the apartheid era was one of the things that most informed the global community about the horrific nature of the apartheid era in and of itself wasn't politicians or speeches. It was the arts. It was music. It was film. It was it was it was it was Hugh Masekela. It was it was people who were able to help tell a bigger story to a broader audience so they could better understand, which is one of the reasons I absolutely love what you're doing with Art Partide. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, how it was created and, and what role these talks have had in reconciling communities? Well, well, thank you. I'm so glad that you mentioned Apartheid, the regular Apartheid, because if we think about it technically, uh, America is kind of apartheid. We're just not as official. Mm. Um, and so that's always in the back of my mind. But um, in 2015, three years ago, it was a February Super Bowl holiday when we put up a, and I say we because it's seven other women who are also responsible for this movement. I like to call it movement. We put up a... Uh, a um, a flyer, and the flyer asked, is Baltimore segregated? Do you feel like people are working in silos? And we put it up in Red Emmers and places like that at the Station North, and we didn't expect to get a response, especially from white people. And so we got a response from white people. We were like, hold up, whoa, whoa. We, we were just talking about black art, mm. uh, and we have to talk amongst ourselves first, and then we will get back to you. Um, and it, that's exactly what we did. Um, a group of black artists got together. We had these conversations, and we started noticing some things. And then we got back to the white artists, and we all sat down. We had a conversation, and we were like, we need to do something to change this. Um, do. And so they thought of a panel of people of all walks of life, and it was on a Sunday. It was a Super Bowl Sunday. And we had a Facebook event, and 200 people, um, they said they were going to come on a Facebook event. But then 500 people showed up. Um, and we, we talked there for hours, like four hours, and we didn't sugarcoat anything. We had art there, we had music there, and we had an action plan. And as a result of that, that's how our apartheid came to be today. And we get together every month, um, and it's not necessarily a talking series. It really is uh, about trying to change the, the disparities in the art world and to work with artists, change things, like you said. And so I figured if I get artists on board, then something could happen personally and then locally and then nationally. And so how do you see the future of Art Partide helping to shape the future of Baltimore? Well, I, I already seen some of the fruits of our labor. Um, um, in fact, the uh, Bros and Arena Players are doing a wonderful show this weekend, and they are collaborating, and they they talk about desegregating the theater 
um, in Baltimore. Hmm. So what, what, I, what I hope to happen is that we have these conversations, and I call them healing conversations, because healing conversations are alive, and it's based on hearing. So you hear more than you talk. And so we're going to get together, um, especially if I'm involved, and seriously talk about those things that are uncomfortable. Talk about racism and sexism and all of these ugly things that happen in the world, and especially in the art world, because people think just because it's art that it's beautiful and it doesn't happen. But it does happen, and it is real. And so I would like to continue these conversations. I would like to uh, be able to collaborate, be able to get some black-owned spaces and buildings um, and, and really talk about equity. I mean, really equaling the playing, playing field. So, Sheila, as we're having this conversation about how to think about this stuff going forward, right? I mean, we have these public monuments that trigger different emotions in different people, right? For some people, mm-hmm. these things trigger pride. And for some people, these, they trigger hate. When we're talking about things that are going to be in the public square, that all of us have to deal with or endure uh, to either, again, to celebrate or to castigate. What advice would you give about how people should think about monuments in the public square that all of us have to see and, and, and have our own emotions that are tied to it, regardless of what those emotions are? So one of the things that I, I really pride myself on is that, and knowing, is that we really have to relearn how to be with one another. The, the way things have been in the past, it, it isn't working, it hasn't worked, um, it, it divides us, it makes somebody else proprietized more than others, and it's not balanced at all. So we really have to relearn how to be with one another. And that means that white folk got to forget all of those things that they were told uh, about how great they are. Um, and black folks got to reminded themselves of how wonderful they are because they were told things that they weren't any good. And so all of that is a lie. And we all drank the Kool-Aid, but we have to relearn how to be with one another. So when we're talking about art and the public square, people have to have, the community really needs to have um, an opinion. Um, They also need to have resources um, and, and money because they can create some things and benefit as well. And so we have to remember the past, and we also have to remember the lens in which we see things. I am a single mother. I'm over 40 years old, and so that's what I see things as. And so you, as a white person, not you personally, right. <laughs> but, but people have to remind themselves of who they are and how and what lens they see the world. It's, it's, it's really, really simple, but it's going to take a lot of patience. Um, and we, and we got to love. We have to care about everyone, not just who, who we belong to. And, uh, and, understand, and understand that how we talk, how we see each other, how we celebrate each other, uh, and how we remember the glory within each other, uh, it does matter in terms of the future that we're trying to live. Right, right. And it also matters on how we treat each other. Because if I'm walking yes. down the street and you don't see me, and so you expect me to move out of the way, 
then you might need to relearn what you learned because I'm not going to move out the way. And, and I am visible. I am seen. And you just have to make room for me because that's the problem. We've been here this whole time, but nobody wants to make room for us. Sheila Gaskins, Baltimore artist and organizer and hero of the community. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. You forgot to mention Skinny. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. I I really do appreciate this. You you don't know, this is really one of my dreams, and uh, and I know it's going to get better. So before we sign off, I just want to leave with a few thoughts. Our city's history is just like the nation's history. It's complex, and it's uneven. Understanding this history is imperative if we want to go forward with context. Now, whether or not we learn from our history is not the question. What we celebrate about our history is. And understanding that interpretation of historical events is just that. It's an interpretation. And how people view that interpretation directly affects whether or not a person feels that our society welcomes them, cares for them, and invests in them. As Dr. Rubin said, any time we memorialize an individual, we have to understand that we risk memorializing their worst actions, while also calling into question their actual contribution. Tawny is a perfect example of that. And as Eric Holcomb reminded us, these statues, where they were placed, when they were placed, and why they were placed, these were not neutral actions. So therefore, we cannot be neutral in addressing a statue that reminds a person of their supposed inhumanity or society's indifference to their belonging. Our future city must remember history, but not be enslaved by it. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and my handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.